Welcome to the second edition of the Thought Police this week. Uh, I'm Mike Graham. Matt Kelly is here. He's the editor of the New European. Yep. Um, the world moves on a pace uh, since the last time you and I spoke. But do you know what we do sometimes, and I think we should do it now from time to time, we ask people to send us the odd email. Um, you could give us the, uh, uh, the email address, actually, yeah, in yeah. a second. But if you ever want us to talk about anything, you want to ask us a question, um, because the growing number of subscribers is, is great. The yeah. podcast is going really Thank well. Thank you to everyone. So thanks for it to everybody who's downloaded it. Tell somebody else about it as well. But what's the, what's the, uh, the email address? So it's thoughtpolicepod yes. at gmail.com. Okay. So if, and I put that out on Twitter, and I'll do it on Facebook as well yeah. uh, from time to time just to get people uh, going. So we thought we'd have a look into the old mailbag. Into the mailbag. They used to call it. That's right. Remember that when there actually was yeah, a mailbag? Do you yeah. know when I used to work in New York, <laughs> there was actually a bag that went every day from every newspaper office which contained photographs sometimes, film, yeah. um, newspapers, magazines, yeah. and it was like a diplomatic bag that went every night from the offices in New York onto a plane at Kennedy Airport, got to London Airport in the morning. Incredible. And one came back the other way. Do you know they used to do, uh, and I'm not bullshitting that, they used to do pigeon post, right? In, yeah. In, um, in the Liverpool Echo. Really? It was the quickest way to get the results to the, for the football echo. Was right. To so what, with pigeon. racing pigeons? So they had, they had racing, yeah, uh, courier pigeons, pigeons yeah, yeah. they called. And, there was, and they would let them go at half-time and at full-time. And there's a funny story. And what would they do? Take the, they just uh, put the score in and who scored, you know. No, but I mean, what, take a little bit of paper to yeah, score? Well, it's got a, it's, it has a little sort of aluminium canister right. Right, on, tied to its foot. That's amazing, and you isn't it? Get a bit of paper and you roll it up and you pop it in. Right. And then, like, three minutes later, the thing would be at Old Hall Street, which right. is the old Echo address. And there's a very funny story about um, an Everton fan watching yeah. a game at Liverpool, right? right? And they were getting beaten 2 0 at half time. So right. he sends off his. You know, Liverpool 2, Everton non-nil, right? right? That goes off at half-time. And then at full-time, they've drawn, they've pulled two back, and in the last minute, they uh, score the winner, right? Right. And the guy grabs the pigeon and shouts into its ear, Liverpool 2, Everton (laughs) 3! Throws it into the air. I'm sure that's bollocks, but it's Probably, it's a good story, though. Right. So what's in our mailbag this week, then? What's in our mailbag? Well, we've got one from Robert Callaghan, Mm -hmm. who says, Morning, lads. I've often wondered about war and conflict correspondence in the press... And what drives them to enter potentially dangerous situations? Is this a personal choice for journalists or is it delegated by higher authority? In yeah. other words, does the editor just point and say, here yeah. we go? Well, it's a bit of both, really, isn't it? Great I question. Mean, uh, it is a good question. I mean, I remember the, the one and only war zone I was ever sent into, um, which was Bosnia. Uh, I remember getting a phone call. Um, I was in the pub, actually, funnily enough, as you, as you do yeah. in those days. And I got a phone call from the deputy editor's secretary. Uh, he was a bloke by the name of Paul Potts in those days. Yeah, Paul Potts. Um, yeah. Who ended up running PA. Yeah. I think he's retired now. Um, but he came on the phone and he said to me, and there was a guy called Danny McGrory, who was the yeah. sort of the big time war correspondent, who ended up at the Times. He was on the Dell Express at the time. He'd been out in Bosnia for about six or seven weeks. Yeah. Um, and they said, you know, we want to pull Danny McGrory out for a bit of a bar and r Yeah. He's been there a long time and we want you to go in his place. You know, and obviously this is a big thing. You might want to take it home and talk to your wife about it, talk to your family about it. Um, you know, but we'd like you to be the guy that goes. Um, and I said, well, you don't have to worry about me talking to anybody about that, uh, Paul, because I'm going to say yes right now. Yeah. Because I thought, of course. one, it's it's of course it's something you want to do. Um, rather selfishly, maybe I shouldn't have uh, made that decision without talking to my wife. Yeah. But I thought to myself, if she says no, I don't want you to go. 
that's really going to be a cause of a problem in the house because yeah. I'm a journalist first yeah. and foremost. You know, I didn't sign up to journalism to yeah. be, you know, pen pusher and just spend my yeah. life in the pub yeah. um, and signing people's expenses. So for me, it was very much um, a choice I could have I could have refused to go. Yeah. But also part of me in the back of my mind was thinking, also if I say no, they've given me the opportunity of a lifetime That's and lifetime I've turned it asked, down. Yeah. And I don't right. think they'll ask again. That's right. I mean, I mean, some of the best reporters, I've never, I've never gone into a war You've zone. been more in production though for yeah, a long time. Yeah, I've been you? more office-based. Yeah. Um, because we should maybe explain to people that yeah. you have a choice, don't yeah. you, when you kind of get into journalism, in the old days anyway. That's right, yeah. You could either be a reporter who goes out knocking on people's doors in those days, or yeah. somebody who's more office-based putting the paper together, That's right. which is more what you did. That's right. And uh, I was really lucky to get a couple of years in Argentina and right. Brazil sort of helping other big newsrooms with mm. changing over to digital. So I had my kind of foreign experience, Yeah, it certainly wasn't a war zone. Nobody was shooting at you. No one was shooting at me. And... Um, People like Anton Antonovich, who, when I was head of features at the Mirror, Anton was our you know top feature yeah. writer, and he would be the guy who would go into these difficult scenarios. It was a weird thing, wasn't it? Because people, I mean, I think they were very jealous of mm. war correspondents. Yeah. And as it's quite glamorous, it is quite glamorous. And as such, I think they sort of made light of it a mm. bit. But it was brought home to me how. You know, dangerous it is when the night of the uh, shock and awe blitz of Baghdad yeah. and Anton was in the hotel where they were all cooped up and was looking out at this yeah. bombardment. And, the you know, it was half a mile yeah. away. It was a huge. They right. could feel the heat. And I was on the phone to him as it happened. Yeah. And him, you know, him and describing it, yeah. and you're hearing the bombs yeah. going off. And, the, you know, almost... Well, I remember I was in shaking. Scotland watching that. And yeah. I remember... Um, I think I was texting or emailing peers backwards and forwards, and I, you know, just because that's what we did in those days. And I remember watching it, thinking this is actually quite sickening to watch. Yeah. Because what I didn't know was that there weren't any people there. Yeah. But you couldn't believe that nobody died. No, because that's nobody right. did die. That's right. That's because right. they evacuated the entire city. But while you're watching it, you're thinking, Oh, it was amazing. Jesus Christ, this is brutal. It was amazing. Everybody's dead. Yeah. You know, they must be killing tens yeah. of thousands of people. And of course, there was at the mirror. There was a brilliant guy called Rupert Hamer yeah. who was at the Sunday Mirror who was killed yes. as a war correspondent in Afghanistan that's right in right. Afghanistan he was blown up by and him. also uh, yeah, it was an IED he was in a, he was in a British Army London that's right and um, the photographer was very seriously hurt as he well, lost a leg he lost a leg yeah I can't remember his name but he ended up in New York I think yeah but when I went out to Bosnia I was very sort of um, green about the whole idea of a war zone I didn't know much about it and what, what was it like when you landed well I landed in a place called Split which was in um, yeah uh, Croatia, which was fine. Yeah. You know, it's like a Mediterranean sort of Adriatic Sea. There was no war there. Yeah. And I got, I was met by Danny McGrory and John Downing, who was the photographer, and they were both going back, so I was not going to have any photographer. And so basically, they were handing over the car, which was a Lada with TV, it had TV and tape yeah, on the yeah, windows, yeah, which I thought yeah. was very cool. Yeah. Um, we drove out of the airport, and the first thing that happened was we got puncture. <laughs> right, and I'm not exactly trained for this shit, right? Yeah. You know, I said at one point to somebody further down the road, I said, you know, my idea of a foreign job is the four seasons in Beverly Hills. Yeah. You know, it's not yeah. sitting in a foxhole yeah. eating out of a tin. <laughs> you know, getting shot at. Yeah. But the longer you're there, yeah, you get more cavalier about it. You Have know? you ever read? Um, it's a brilliant book called Dispatches by a fellow called Michael Hare. Don't think so. It is absolutely superb, mm. and um, it was 1977. 
I'm just looking at it on Wikipedia to yeah. refresh my memory, but the, the character in it who stands out by a mile is Errol Flynn's son, really? Sean Flynn, okay. who was a very wild cavalier war reporter, and okay. I'm pretty sure ends up getting killed in yeah. this. But the book is well, absolutely I met, phenomenal. I mean, I met loads of people who were professional yeah. kind of war correspondents. I mean, yeah. Martin Bell, for example. Martin yeah. Bell, yeah. Um, who was still a BBC reporter at that time, had already had the incident where he'd had one of his balls shot off, yeah. and they now have a bulletproof vest with what they call the bell flap. Is that right? the bell flap goes down between your legs, you nuts, which yeah. didn't used to be there. Wow. And you now do that, right? Um, but he would go off on his own. We, we were based in Vitez, which was in central Bosnia. There was a big... Uh, British Army camp, and it was the Yorkshires, I think, who were brilliant. Yeah. Um, and we got all our food there, but I lived in a little house. But all the big players, like the BBC, the Telegraph, uh, ITN, um, you know, all the big American networks, they all had either security and armour-plated cars. Yeah. You know, they had armour-plated Land Rovers, which, yeah. you know, you could penetrate with a, with a bazooka, but you couldn't penetrate with a regular bullet. Yeah. Um, and I had a larder. Yeah. Which was a soft car. Who were you working for? Daily Express. Yeah. You know, I had no photographer. Yeah. I had no fucking, um, <laughs> no, no backup plan of any kind. Yeah. And but so he would drive off every day with his crew and his armour-plated Land Rover and go and find stories. Yeah. But I couldn't really do that. You'd go and try and find a mechanic to you get know, the engine to I was work. like, yeah, but by the end of the time I was there, here's a story for you, mm-hmm. right? Um... I had to get petrol because when you get the, the, the car up, you're, you're literally in a place where there's no electricity. I had a bath once a month. We had no running water in the house. Right? Yeah. And every night you're sitting uh, in darkness because you can't have a candle because there's snipers everywhere. Right. There's houses on fire around the place. You hear, you know, gunfire all the time. Yeah. And you just get normalised to yeah, it, right? Amazing. So, um, and there's no petrol stations as such. <laughs> you know, you can imagine you don't stop off for a flick and mix and a yeah. egg sandwich, you know. <laughs> but so I, I got to the point where I'd, I'd, I'd used my, my sort of spare tank of petrol, which is in a big plastic container. So I thought, well, I better not want to run out of petrol because there were bandits around and stuff. Mm. So I said to one of the guys in my house, I said, well, like, he said, well, there's, there's a petrol station, but it's down the road. Um, it's about a mile. He said, the problem is, between here and there, there's a sniper, and he's up in the forest. Bloody hell. So, but don't worry about it, because if you hit 90 clicks, 90 kilometres an hour, he can't hit you, because right. that means you're going too quick. Right. He just can't track you. Yeah. You yeah. So, of course, because I've been there a few, I'm like, fine. <laughs> I mean, do you imagine somebody yeah. saying that to you here? <laughs> just take the car, yeah. just make sure you can put your foot down. And you're allowed to do 90 clicks. Yeah, amazingly. Yeah, I felt like it, the doors were going to fall off. <laughs> But we got to the petrol station, it was all breeze blocked up, so because the sniper used to kill people as they were filling the car, right? Yeah. So there's all these breeze blocks. I'm on this side of the breeze blocks and I'm kind of looking, you know. Yeah. Um, fill the car up. But the feeling of absolute and utter kind of uh, joy yeah. that I had for getting to Amazing. the petrol station was fantastic. It must be so exhilarating. Really exhilarating, yeah. right? Um, you know, got the petrol, paid for it, get back in the car, right? 90, 90 clicks again, fucking all the way back to the place, got back. I've never been as excited, I don't yeah. think, at that point in my life as I felt Amazing. as if I was. I felt as if I was Errol Flynn. But what? What's it, I've always wondered what's it like when you come back and you know. And well, and then you go and interview. This is what Martin you know. Bell said to me because yeah. he, Martin Bell, famously lived in Hampstead, and I'm from there. And he lived above a restaurant called La Gaffe, which is in Heath yeah. Street. And he said, you know, because I got, I started to get quite friendly with him, and he's quite an odd guy, quite a loner, you know. He was he was Martin to, Bell was the one who became the. That's right. He stood the, against the, the MP. dreaded. Uh, yeah. The dreaded, what's the name? The uh, Jonathan, what's his face? The couple, yeah. no, the, the, the swingers, remember? The so-called swingers. I thought he was against... Uh, I thought he stood against um, the fellow who went to prison for for perjury. Um, 
the minister. It was Neil Hamilton. He said, Neil, this, wasn't it? Oh, was it? I, I thought, thought it was, it was John. Hamilton. Hang on a second. We'll I thought on. it was Neil Hamilton because I thought it was that all this trusty sword of truth stuff. But you might be absolutely right. Hang on. No, I think I, no. He right. was London. I think. Right. I, think, I thought it was Neil Hamilton. But anyway, um, but sometimes we'd have breakfast together, and he would say things to me like, you know, it's very difficult um, when you've been somewhere like this to go home and open up the gas bill. Yeah. Was it Neil Hamilton? It was Neil yeah. Hamilton. The white, you yeah. know, and, and he said, it's, I find it really hard to be back yeah. in London yeah. when all of this is going on. Because he really did care. I mean, I didn't care so much. I wasn't there as a sort of crusading yeah. television reporter. The kicker to the story about the sniper, though, is we used to drink in the sergeant's mess, um, which was the place to be. And I'd just given up... It was another time I'd given up smoking, and I thought, this is not a good time to give up smoking, because the cigarettes were really cheap. Yeah. The drink was really cheap, and we'd be with these great guys yeah. from the Yorkshire Regiment. And you're a war reporter. And so I'm a war reporter, so I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> anyway, so I'm telling the story about how proud I was about this trip to the, to the petrol station, you know. And this guy who I'd become quite friendly with was very silly. He was from Ghoul, I think, and so he had this very laconic way of speaking. And he said, well, the two things wrong with your story, Mike. I said, what's that? He said... Um, well, you didn't have to go to that petrol station. You could have come here. We'd have given you petrol for nothing. <laughs> and I went, oh, right. And he said, and that thing about 90 miles, 90 kilometres an hour, that's fucking bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, what, you mean he could have shot me? He went, yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Bloody hell. But, yeah, so, I yeah. mean, um, you're right to say about um, covering war has become very different as well because yeah. I think now it's very difficult to go anywhere without being embedded. embedded yeah. And there was a time when you could be independent and do your own thing. But yeah. I think now, because it's quite dangerous as well, I mean, look what happened to Mary Colvin. That's right. You know, from the Sunday Times. She was a woman who was murdered, effectively. Yeah, very good film, by the way. Yeah, very yeah. Good film, yeah. great book yeah. was written about her as well. Yeah. Um, she, was she, was, she was targeted and pinpointed and That's killed right. yeah. by the Assad regime That's right. in Homs. Yeah. And, you know, you can't really guarantee your own safety but there was I remember in the mirror newsroom there was a point and I can't remember what triggered it but there were times when Anton would just go off yeah uh, and then there came an event where and it wasn't poor old uh, Rupert but there was an event where suddenly everything got health and mm. safety right. and people went off on courses about right. you know defensive driving and how to get out of trouble and, yeah. and they all had you know flak jackets yeah. made for them and all of this business and so I mean it sounds obvious but that you know, they started taking it seriously. Yeah, you know, they did. Uh, in a way, because when the first Gulf War happened, yeah. I mean, loads of people made a lot of money there. That's I mean, right. I don't want to name him because he's still acting, it's still working. But there was one tabloid guy um, who put in a bill for a chemical warfare suit, yeah. twenty three thousand quid. <laughs> I used to love. The Nobody ex questioned the, it. The expenses yeah. that came in. Nobody questioned there it. There was always two hundred dollars for a fixer, yeah. two hundred dollars for a driver, two hundred dollars for the car, mm. two hundred dollars for an interpreter. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of people we were given two hundred dollars a day. Yeah. to, you couldn't fit in the bloody no. car. No, exactly. <laughs> but it was all cash as well. Yeah, all so cash. you couldn't get. And you said, "What do you want? A receipt from a war zone?" Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the paper couldn't say much about it really. <laughs> but I mean, that was the, one of the great. Was it James Cameron, um, the famous yeah. sort of Guardian writer, yeah, who, who, who famously was in one of the great expense stories, um, who had to go out for somebody's funeral? Um, and it was not in NASA in Egypt or something like that. Yeah. Um, and he put in a bill for a camel. Yeah. You know, and uh, the <laughs> oh, managing editor oh, oh, of the paper was a bit wise to some of his excesses, and he said, yeah. "Unless you can produce this camel for me, yeah. uh, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to pass the bill for the uh, for the camel's hiring." Yeah. 
So he came back with a receipt for the camel's funeral. And he said, unfortunately, the camel died, so here's another bill for you. And he had to pay. <laughs> my favourite, I used to love signing writer's axes when yeah. I was in the mirror. And my favourite one was from a very good friend who I won't name, but I got the bill, the receipts, and I called him out and I said, um, Mate, he said, uh, it's about your exes, and yeah. he got very defensive. Oh, what about them? Yeah, because you have to get yeah. defensive. Yeah. So he said, well, it was this meal you had with the detective sergeant mm. from CID right. uh, about this murder trial. Yeah. He said, yeah, what about it? I said, well, which one of you two had the dinosaur chicken nuggets? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's terrible. That is bad business, because that sounds too cheap to be claiming. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, there was another one, I remember. He came back, and... and you used to get receipts that you could fill in with mm. a pen. And uh, it was from Pizza Hut, and I had to phone him up and say, Look, man, I'm not being funny, but it's actually a physical impossibility right. to spend 142 quid at right. Pizza Hut. Unless you were there for a week. <laughs> yeah, well, the chain is now closed down. Well, let's do another show. Yeah, good old day. Let's do another email. Thank you for that one. Yeah. Uh, and Steve Clark. Steve Clark writes, Hello, gentlemen. I would really love to. You got that bit wrong. Steve, uh, I, would re- <laughs> I would really love to hear your take on the problems facing Scotland going forward. I am a married British male living in Aberdeen for some 18 years with a Scottish-born son. I point the above out so you can see where I'm coming from. Questions. How long should it be before Scotland gets in DREF 2? Two, given that oil is on its way out, is Scotland in a strong financial position to go alone? And three, what will the UK government have to do for UK citizens who use their, lose their UK status in Scotland in the event of independence. Yeah, well... That's a tricky one. That's a long one that requires a big answer, really. Yeah. But what I will say is one of the things which everyone in Scotland says is not a Scottish problem, but it's a West Coast problem, is I don't know whether you know that there's been all these marches lately... Yes, I do. ...which have been ridiculously violent... Yeah. ...and which have caused people to um, see the resurgence of people marching for the IRA... Yeah. ...people marching for the UVF... I mean, that's never really gone away yeah. um, in the west of Scotland. I mean, places like, um, you know, uh, the south side of Glasgow, yeah. where Celtic Football Club is, Govan, where Rangers is. I mean, I know a guy um, who used to employ only former members of the UVF as security in nightclubs. Yeah. You know, because they're all around the place. That's right. And they're all very good at what they do. Yeah. And that problem has never gone away. And the fact that it's now reared its ugly head, I think they've started to now ban the marches. But at first, they said, oh, no, we can't ban the marches because we allow the orange marches. Yeah. And I mean, it's so ridiculous. No, no, Why the nice. hell would they let that go on yeah. in a country which is not even involved in the orange marches? Yeah. You know? Well, I, I went and worked, as you did, in mm. Scotland for yeah. a few years. And I was... I was totally unprepared for the level of sectarianism yeah. that was there. Right. This is in 93, so yeah. I don't know what it's... It was, I mean, I was there in 2003 and it was yeah. still bad. Yeah, you know? and it was... I mean, they, it's... You know, Liverpool has a reputation for being a place where there's a Catholic-Protestant tension, but... It's nothing like I mean, that. oh, mate, no, not no. at all. Not at all. No. And I mean, um, that's a side issue, I suppose. Yeah. If you're living in Aberdeen like this guy is, yeah. you know, and even Edinburgh, people yeah. say, you know, it doesn't work here. But you say that, but it actually works at football matches where, you know, hearts who play on the Protestant side of Edinburgh yeah. are still singing up to my knees in Fenian blood. That's right. And chucking... Um, when Neil Lennon was, was manager of Celtic, yeah. chucking coins at him. Yeah. And one guy tried to punch him. Yeah. You know, so it's not fair to say that it's not there in, in... But as far as independence is concerned, I think a lot's going to depend upon um, what happens in Westminster. Yeah. Because amongst all of the various permutations of who could become the next government, you'd have to think that Labour and the SNP could get into bed with each other 
and form themselves into a coalition government which would have enough numbers to beat the Tories. Yeah. It's not out of the question. No, not at all. Um, and but I what think, about India F2, do you think? Well, I don't think, um, despite the fact that a lot of polls will show, because I talk to a lot of SNP MPs and they will tell you, first time you ask them a question, well, of course the polls are showing that many more people now want independence than, than did before. But my, one of the statistics I always like to use is that more people voted to remain, um, sorry, voted to leave the European Union in Scotland than voted for India F1. Yeah. Which is an extraordinary statistic. Isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? because we're always told that Scotland is a Remain country. Yeah. It's a 60-40 Remain country, yeah. which means there's still quite a lot of people that want to, that want to stay yeah. uh, outside of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's financially viable, independence. Well, I've, um, I, you know, I've got... My in-laws are in uh, Aberdeen. Okay. And, you know, I like the place tremendously. I've never actually been to Aberdeen. It's great, Aberdeen. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a slightly colourless city because yeah. everything grey granite. It's the granite so city. When it's it. raining, yeah. it can feel a bit grim. But yeah. when it's sunny, the Aberdeen beach is well, like Cape Cod. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the sand in Scotland is yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, parts of the West Coast, a place called Malague, yeah. which is up near Sky. Yeah. Which is, I mean, if it was in the Caribbean, you'd be selling trips yeah. there for, you know, 300 quid a night. Yeah. But it's a bit chilly. But so I, you see the decline of the oil traffic yeah. in Aberdeen Harbour, but there's a lot of, and as, as somebody else touched on in a, in a question to us about renewable energy, um, that's where mm. the future for Scotland is, I think, in tidal and wind yeah. power, offshore tidal, just as it is, interestingly, in East Anglia, yeah. huge amounts of energy. So I suspect that... Are your in-laws pro-independence uh, then? Um, well... Or is it split? It's split, really. I think my my brother-in-law is quite pragmatic about it and I think emotionally would welcome it but yeah. understands that economically it would be a disaster. Yeah. My mother-in-law, who uh, died about six months ago now and is much missed, she, again, was a very proud Scot um, and hates hated all the bollocks that goes on in mm. Westminster, was mm. contemptuous of it. But I think she had a nagging concern about the politicians yeah. who would take over in Scotland yeah. you know, and, and what types of... Well, they, that's the know. problem. I mean, the Scottish Parliament is not filled with geniuses by no. any stretch of the imagination. No. And I worked very closely in, in Edinburgh with a lot of those people. In fact, I knew... I used to know Nicola Sturgeon pretty well at one point. You right. know? We used to drink in Regano's together. Oh, did you? Great restaurant. Quite, yeah. yeah, great place. Um, and we had a couple of very interesting conversations, which I'll tell you about uh, off-air, as it were. <laughs> but anyway... Um, the problem is that a lot of people who are not SNP fanatics don't think the SNP are doing a very good job of running Scotland. Right. Because the big... What I always used to say when Salmon was around was he loved the idea that Westminster wouldn't give him any power because he could sit and moan about not having any power. Yeah. Once they started giving power, he was in a best... He was, wasn't in such a good position because he had to say, well, what are you going to do with it? Because yeah. they could put their income tax up if they wanted, if they right. wanted to raise more money. Yeah. They've, got a ter- they've got the worst health track record in the world they've got the biggest number of drug deaths per capita in yeah. the world yeah. right their education system is not as good as it used to be you know there's an awful lot that they would lose tax wise in terms of like HMRC have got a massive operation in Edinburgh they'd all be they'd all yeah. be lost to the, to the south yeah. right they'd have to move all of them back to Newcastle all those yeah. jobs they would lose the army the defence scenario and as we know one out of four Scots 
joins the army, you know, joins the army. Well, sorry, no, the army is made up of one out of four. A quarter of, a quarter the, quarter army of the army is made up of Scotland, yeah, yeah. which is a far bigger And you've got proportion. the huge uh, Rossite. You've nuclear. got the nuclear thing going on. So That's, I just yeah. don't see it as a viable option. And they've no. also got a very big public sector in Scotland. Mm. I used to know people of almost every couple that I knew, one of them was either a teacher or was a civil servant, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's an awful lot of, and you, yeah. you know, despite what you make, people may say, you can't run an economy on public sector employment only. No, There's no. not enough jobs up there to give everybody, you know, yeah. a reasonable living. So I just don't think it will ever be a viable option. Because, no. it, I mean, imagine looking at 300 years of an organisation when we're, we're looking at how much trouble we're having just splitting up after 40. Yeah. 300 years. Yeah. You can have a hard border across the M6. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, how's it going to work? It'd be interesting, though, if, if, you know, I don't know how this scenario would work, but if Britain did, does Brexit and Scotland decided that it wanted to mm. stay in and the European Union were open to that, yeah. that could be a massive economic opportunity. If they it would, could, but they'd have, to, they'd have to paint themselves as a kind of deprived nation. Right. And they'd have to get sort of deprived nation status and they could get loads of European money. But would they have the euro? I mean, even the SNP don't have the answer to that. Yeah. They think they'd keep the pound. Really? Well, how would that work? So they would have a foreign currency. They would either they would have a foreign... Um, sort of government running them from Europe. How is that independence? Yeah. Well, you know? we're back to the old problem with Brexit. Yeah. Anyway, my wife is Scottish, so mm. if that ever did come to pass, I'd be able to claim my Scottish. Well, my parents are both European again from the west coast of Scotland. Yeah. Both from both from Glasgow, so yeah. you know, I'd be all right as well. Yeah. But the point is, is that I don't think that would be good for Britain either. By the way, no, so I agree. It's not with just that. a one way. I don't think Scotland could survive. I don't want to be part of England. Which is no longer got England you know, Scotland. and Wales, you know? Could you yeah. Imagine? yeah, be like the cricket, wouldn't it? Yeah, England Wales Sh- cricket ball, shiza. Yeah. You know, we just lost <laughs> the Ashes. We got no, we haven't. We retained. We, we you drew see, the this ashes. is why I don't like cricket. We drew the yeah, ashes. we lost the Ashes. Where's the urn? I don't know. It's gone back to Australia. Has it? Do you yeah. know a funny thing? When they um, there's a brilliant. By the way, if you're into cricket, there's a brilliant. Uh, it's like a documentary film. Yeah. Or I think it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Uh, and it's called The Edge and okay. it's all about the Andy Flowers period in okay. charge Kevin Peterson and yeah, Andrew yeah. Strauss and how they went from being number 7 to number 1 in yeah. the world very quickly right. and then everything went completely tits up right. very shortly after they that. go up and down like, like but, you know ridiculous but numbers, there's a brilliant there's a brilliant 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 bit in it where um, uh, Andy Strauss as captain uh, they've just won the ashes right. you know, for the first time in ages right. and they're photographed holding he's holding this the uh, tiny little ashes yes. thing above his head right. and um, and the team all mad with jubilation and he says in it and you can see it in the photo he said how gutted he was when he turned looked at the underside of the ashes mm. and saw a sticker saying saying uh, Lord Shop 499 <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> it wasn't the real one. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but I recommend that film. Anyway, okay, so I hope that's come, that sort of added to your confusion on yes, Scotland. Yes, we haven't sure. really given you an answer. I'm sure, but uh, very, very complicated. Right, last one. Yeah, uh, probably. Gren Steele right. um, says, I have a few questions for you both in regard to your past jobs. What is the best and worst jobs you have both had in the past? Mm. And the most important question of all, what is the most expensive drink you have bought from a bottle of wine or a single drink. Great show, guys. Keep up the good work. Right. Well, so, worst okay. and best jobs. Well, I'd have to say the job I've got now is so great that yeah. I might have to say it's the best job I've ever had. Yeah. The Independent Republic, Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Yeah. Because um, it's a three-hour radio show, which is growing like you wouldn't believe. 
and it's so much fun to do because we're in the midst of this crazy world. I mean, literally every day people will say to me, how do you even get enthusiastic about the same thing every day? Yeah, yeah. But the, the reason is, is I, I liken it to my Labrador, right? Because I once said to a vet, I've never seen anything like my lab. You get so excited about it, they're the same walk every single day. Yeah. We go the same way. Yeah. And he gets really excited. Yeah. He said, yeah, but for him, it's a different walk every day because yeah. he smells different things. Yeah. He sees different things. That's There's other good. things yeah, there like that weren't that. there yesterday. Yeah. And so for me, every day is different mm. you know there's always a different caller there's mm. always a different story there's always a, and it's just great fun mm. to be part of something yeah. that, that, that's really important for this country and I don't I'm not trying to big myself up here because I'm very much just an observer but it's just a great being on the radio which yeah. I discovered fairly late in life I mean I love newspapers always will um, but it was a lot harder yeah you know there's a lot more stress yeah a lot more responsibility in a way um, because I'm lucky to have this, you know, gift of talking bollocks yeah. or whatever you may want to do. But you say that. I mean, I, I've had a little taste of, of doing that mm. over a period of time. And, yeah. and I went into it thinking, how hard can this be? But yeah. it is much harder. It's, it's hard to it's do exhausting. it really well. It yeah. is. It, yeah. does, it does take it out of you more yeah. than you think. I mean, yeah. But, you know, when I used to work at the Mirror, as you did, I would go in at, say, 10 in the morning. I'd still be there at 10 at night. That's right. I might have gone out for lunch. Yeah. I might have even gone and shagged somebody. No, sorry. No. <laughs> But, you know, I'd still be but working. It, it was your life, wasn't it? it yeah, but it was your life. life. But also, you know, the thing now is my fa- my phone never stopped ringing. Yeah. Even when I was off. Yeah. You know, and I also right. remember when I was night editor of the Express, Gianni Versace was murdered. Uh, yeah. Um, and I was off. Right. But I rang the office, right? You get this. Richard Addis was the editor of the Express at the time. There was a guy called Paul Carter, who was a lovely bloke. He's now unfortunately died from cancer, but went off to work for the Mail. He was a really good production guy. He was my deputy. He didn't like me very much either, because he <laughs> thought he should have got the job, and I right. got promoted over him. And I called him up and I said, well, you won't have any worries today, will you? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, Gianni Versace has just been shot dead. He went, yeah, he, uh, he doesn't want to do it. I said, what? He doesn't want to do what? it. Yeah, what, Richard Addis, you're talking about? He said, yeah, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to smash it. <laughs> I said, why not? He said, well, that's because he says that's what everybody else is going to be doing. And I went, yeah, it's called news. There's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, there's a reason yeah. for that. And I said, you've got to go in there and tell him yeah. that you can't not make this. He eventually did it. Yeah. But he was really, he didn't want to do it. I'm like, it's your job. And you'd have, and it, because you know as well as I do, it's all about judgment, isn't it? Yeah. And you'd sometimes have to fight to get your story on the front page, or if you did get it on the front page, yeah. it was wrong. It was a terrible, oh, you know. I mean, it was just I've awful. never, I mean, I've never had so many nights being sort of waking up two, three in the morning, yeah. feeling sick, yeah. with worry suddenly. Yeah. That oh my god, yeah. that's wrong. You know, yeah. I, or I've screwed. And up it's there. too late. Oh, so what's yours? What was so, your best job? Be well, I mean, I love my current job you know I get to edit a newspaper yeah. which I you know about something which that you I really believe in yeah. about, and right. I started the newspaper yeah. so that's wonderful and you've had the pleasure of watching it grow and, and it's you know it's a success so that's yeah. that's been mm. superb and I, my broader job is more around local news yeah. I'm chief content officer of this group called Archons right. and so there's also a massive task in, in making local news mm. sustainable which right. I think is really really important yeah. you know but my best job ever was uh, my first job, which was working on Southport Fairground. Right. As, like, you know, I, I had a number of jobs. I made candy floss. I, right. I was on the waltzers. I, you know, I was one of those guys. Did you get to refuse waltzers. to take any Scottish currency? Because you know how the fairgrounds would all yeah. refuse to take Scottish yeah. five pound I, I, I learned how to give, how to show somebody 80 pence change in my hand and, and palm over 70 pence. <laughs> you know, I learned all sorts of things. The, the, uh, the crack was fantastic. Yeah. And it was... It was suddenly just being exposed to, uh, you know, it's a what, real life. I yeah, but also this sort of microcosm of life in yeah. the fairground. You know, every every character's there. It's so bright. Yeah. 
and everybody's there for a good time so you know there's that positivity about it but wonderful wonderful stories you know like for instance on the waltzers and this is where people should wise up next time they go on a waltzer in in, in Pleasureland in Southport where I worked um, what you would do every morning is, is throw a bucket of sand underneath the seats right? right? so that when everybody's change came pouring out of their right. pockets as you span them round and uh-huh. round they couldn't hear it landing <laughs> and then at the end of the night you would get a big colander right. and shovel the sand into the colander wow. and you would sieve out all That's the money brilliant. and how much would you make? oh more, you would make more than you would earn and this was a mistake wow. that some people made was they, they'd made so much on stuff like that and mm. fiddling things they'd, go, they'd forget to go and get their wages right, right. and the next day of course the, you know the boss would fire you because right. you know he knew you'd obviously he knew what he'd done taking the piss wow it was, a, it was great. great I'd love to write something about Fairground you Wife you know it was really you should really wonderful yeah worst job I've ever had was um well, I'd have to say my last year at the Mirror, where um, I was running the digital side of things yeah. on the Mirror, and a guy came in who I've since become very good friends with, but he was kind of digital through and through, born yeah. and bred, didn't know anything about newspapers or stories and stuff like this. So although we were trying to get to the same place, we both had very different mm. life experiences. And I think we we both rubbed each other up yeah. the wrong way. There's nothing worse than going in every yeah. morning to a job that you know yeah. you're not going to have a good time doing. Uh, and I used to, used to call me at weekends, you know, to mm. complain about something. And yeah. I remember, you know, I wasn't having a breakdown, but I, I, I remember feeling absolutely, mm. I, I, this cannot go on yeah. anymore, you know. And, and shouting at yeah. him, why are you phoning me? It's yeah. Saturday at three o'clock, right. you know. Let's talk about it on Monday. Right. But uh, anyway... So that was the reason that I left the Mirror, mm. really. Which you know, I love the Daily Mirror. Yeah. It's a great paper and it's a great set of people. But that I, that tipped me over the edge, and mm. I just thought it's time to do something. Yeah, new. I think when it gets like that, I mean, I yeah. had a situation like that at the Express because I was promoted into the features editor's chair, but they made me acting features editor. Yeah, and I rather naively thought at the time, oh, this is a good job for me. It's all about getting good features commissioned and getting them in the paper. No, no, that wasn't what it was about. It was about shifting the woman who was in charge of features out, right. promoting her to a sort of nebulous role yeah. because the editor at the time thought that she was too powerful. And you know what it's like. If you head a department in newspapers, you're powerful. Yeah. If you don't, if your assistant editor brackets bollocks, yeah. Yeah. you really nobody pays any attention That's to right. you. Worse than that was we did the three months. I did it pretty well. Um... And at the end of the three months, I got called into the office to be told, you've done a brilliant job, um, thanks very much indeed, um, we're going to make you executive features editor. Right. To which I said, what does that mean? Yeah. I said, is that the same as features editor? <laughs> no, it's not the quite. Same. No. The features editor is going to be somebody else, uh, a woman who I happen to know, but who wasn't, in my view, anything other than extremely rude. And I said to the yeah. editor, so I'm not mentioning any names deliberately here, because yeah, yeah. people are still around. Yeah. And I said, uh, well, I already know how to be fucking rude. What am I going to learn from her? Because he said, oh, well, you can learn a lot from her. Yeah. And I just said, well... I, I think I know you're talking yeah. about that, right? yeah. um, And it turns out, right, that for the next two or three months, um, we would have this... It was a sort of Starship Enterprise-style desk, and she would sit in the middle, and I'd be one of those on the outside. Yeah. And... She'd go into conference, and I would say, and she would ask the other sort of sycophants if they any ideas. You'd take a few ideas from them, um, and I would say things like, "Would you like me to give you a couple of ideas?" No, thanks. <gasps> and just walk off. Oh my god! Worse than that, right? I discovered um, that my phone, which never rang, had been put on divert to hers. 
No, uh, to an to an ice cream machine. <gasps> so everybody that was trying to call me Bloody thought I wasn't there. I didn't discover this for like two, three weeks. This, but this is the kind, of, kind stuff of shit people that people got up do. to. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it was in a very competitive environment, yeah. like Fleet Street mm. was, because you know that was the best of the yeah. best of the time, and newspapers were the biggest yeah. media yeah. at the time. So you were really we were doing about one point eight million in those days. People would rip your throat yeah. out to get above you. She'd come out of, of conference and yeah. say to the others, "Oh yeah, we definitely want so and so to write that. Can you get onto that? Yeah, uh, we want um, a, a big piece on this from that person." Yeah. And I would go, do you want me to do anything? Yeah. No. No, not really. Walk off again. Yeah. And this but, went on for weeks. So here's the thing, though, is that, that when you're under that kind of stress, mm. and it's impossible not to be affected no, by that, it is, yeah. and it starts seeping into yeah. your soul, right. and everything becomes a very dark place, mm. that's happened to me two or three times, yeah. and I've walked away from the job, always thinking, you know, I, you know, this is terrible, I'm, yeah. I'm never going to be able to do some, that's something that interesting again. Yeah. And every single time I've come into something better something than better, what yeah. I've left. Yeah. So my message, is, my message is, if you are having a shit time at work, don't be yeah. too worried about biting the bullet and just walking away. Well, do you know, the way, the, when it all changed, was Craig McKenzie came over to me one day and he yeah. had become the night editor. Um, and she was sitting there and I was sitting there. And he said, all oh, right, I'm going out for a quick drink. Do you want to come? Um, and I was like, yeah, okay. And he looked at her and sort of made the same invitation and she just basically blanked him. Yeah. And we went out to the lifts and he went, Jesus Christ, mate, I didn't think it was that bad. I said, well, it's pretty bad. Yeah. And he said, well, you come over with me. And he brought me onto the back bench. Great. And that was the start of my production. Good. Great fun, kind of thing, right? Great fun. And, you know, he was brilliant. Yeah. He was back. very kind to me at the Mirror yeah. as well. Took me under his wing. Yeah. Brilliant guy. Yeah. Mm. Better take him out for a drink. And as far as the yeah. most expensive drink goes, show. as far as the, the, the most expensive drink goes, yes. I think... I once had a meal in Monte Carlo, which I think is definitely the most I've ever spent on a meal in Monte Carlo anywhere. Yeah. But it was because we'd won. It was I was on my honeymoon actually, and I yeah. we won uh, five hundred quid yeah. on the casino on, yeah. the, on the roulette, right? I went and spent it in the in the, the, the the restaurant, which was open air restaurant on the top of the nice. um, of the Hotel Ducat, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I had a bottle of wine that was about two hundred quid. Nice. Which was brilliant. Yeah. But I think that's about the most I've I ever spent. I'm try- I'm racking my brains now because I like nice wine, yeah. you know, and I'll quite happily pay twenty quid mm. for a bottle of wine. And very occasionally, if I'm flush, you know, I might spend fifty quid yeah. on a bottle of wine. But I don't think I've, I've... But in a restaurant, you can spend a lot more Ah, that. well, I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, I must have spent a couple of hundred quid in a restaurant yeah. for an anniversary or something like that. Yeah. But ask me if I can remember what the hell it was. The answer, <laughs> the answer's no. Right. You know, but I think I once bought a bottle of Chateau Montrachet yes. in, oh, in Roast yeah. down in London Bridge. Yeah. And it was about 110 quid. Nice. But nice. it was lovely. Nice. Really nice. I love Montrachet. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to share a bottle of one of these days. There's two, isn't there? There's Chassin Montrachet and, and Pellini Montrachet. Pellini Montrachet. And Pellini is the better one. That's the only yeah. one I've ever had. Yeah, though. yeah. Oh, we'll have to have one together. Beautiful. Well, we'll have that and we'll invite all our listeners. No, we right. won't. Well, that's <laughs> <thin bleach. laughs> See you later. Cheers. I had to get petrol because when you get the, the, the car up you're, you're literally in a place where there's no electricity I had a bath once a month we had no running water in the house right? yeah. and every night you're sitting uh, in darkness because you can't have a candle because there's snipers everywhere right. there's houses on fire around the place you hear you know gunfire all the time yeah and you just get normalised to yeah, it, right? Amazing. So, um, and there's no petrol stations as such. <laughs> you know, you can imagine you don't stop off for a freaking mix and a yeah. egg sandwich, you know. 
But so I, I got to the point where I'd, I'd, I'd used my, my sort of spare tank of petrol, which is in a big plastic container. So I thought, well, I better not want to run out of petrol because there were bandits around and stuff. Mm. So I said to one of the guys in my house, I said, well, like, he said, well, there's, there's a petrol station, but it's down the road. Um, it's about a mile. He said, the problem is between here and there, there's a sniper and he's up in the forest. So, but don't worry about it because if you hit 90 clicks, 90 kilometers an hour, he can't hit you. Andy Strauss as captain, they've just won the Ashes right. you know, for the first time in ages. Right. And they're photographed holding, he's holding this, the tiny little Ashes yes. thing above his head. Right. And, um, and the team all mad with jubilation. And he says in it, and you can see it in the photo, he said how gutted he was when he turned, looked at the underside of the Ashes mm. and saw a sticker saying, saying uh, Lord Shop 499. <laughs> <laughs> This was a mistake wow. that some people made, was they, they'd made so much on stuff like that and mm. fiddling things, they'd, go, they'd forget to go and get their wages, right? Yeah. And the next day, of course, the, you know, the boss would fire you. Which one of you two had the dinosaur chicken nuggets? 